But what's harder these days is to put it aside to roll up our sleeves and to do the work. Go find someone who needs you. And if you are going to tell me, well, I don't know anybody who needs you, well, then we need to work on that. Welcome, everyone, to Do Well and Do Good. You're here because you have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. I'm your host, Dorothy Ilson, and I'm here to help you discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 62 of the podcast. I'm thrilled that you're here. And before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind you that in just a few days on April 1st, we'll be hosting the vote for the Do Well and Do Good Challenge inside of our free Facebook community. This is where you can make your voice heard on which of the nonprofits nominated by my guest this month that we'll be making a donation to on behalf of the show. So if you'd like to participate, head over to Do well and do good.co backslash Facebook to join the group. Now, today's guest is Sean Askinosi. In 2006, Sean left a successful 20-year career as a criminal defense lawyer to start a bean-to-bar chocolate factory, and he never looked back. Askinoski Chocolate is a small-batch, award-winning chocolate factory in Springfield, Missouri, which sources 100% of their beans directly from farmers that they actually profit share with on three different continents. Soon after I scheduled this interview with Sean, I did two things to prepare. First, I got a copy of his book, Meaningful Work, The Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. Second, I got a bar of Askinosi chocolate for research, of course. Now, I wish that I had the ability to play on this recording my exact reaction when I first tried Sean's chocolate, but you'll just have to take my word for it that it was quite literally the best chocolate I've ever experienced. When you combine the way that Sean leverages his business to do good in the world with the product that they are creating, the result is truly mind-blowing. So Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I am truly thrilled to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Man, let's just stop at that introduction. Just, <laughs> just play that over and over. Thank you so much. No, I'm, I'm excited to talk with you. Well, we've got to keep going because there is so much that I have to ask you, Sean. And you know, I mentioned before we hit record that when I started reading your book, you know, my intention was to like dog ear any pages that had something especially good that I wanted to cover in the interview. But that strategy kind of went right out the window when I got through chapter one and realized I dog eared like literally half the pages. So uh, really just impressed. So Sean, set the stage for us. Could you tell me you know, what life was like for you growing up and how that really started to shape the person you became? My dad was in law school when I was born and uh, we moved to Springfield, Missouri right after he graduated. And, and so I grew up in the 60s and all that that brought with it. So I, I was young, but was able to really kind of have some understanding of what was happening in the late 60s. And I think that really began to shape my future self. Also, my father as a lawyer was very active in social causes. He would bring me to the courthouse with him when he started a program called Legal Aid. So for people who couldn't afford a lawyer, he would literally sit in a room and there'd be a line that snaked all the way around this 
area of the courthouse for people. And I was with him and I was probably 10 years old. So that really, really had an impact on me. And then, of course, as you've read in the book, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer when I was 12 and um, taking, helping take care of him when he was sick. We didn't have hospice back then. And just being part of that illness and have that happen to the family really, it really shaped, I think, who I am to this very second. And I am sure that any answer I give you in the next 30 or 40 minutes will be in large part shaped by the experience of, of his sickness and death and the part that I played in it. Going through the book, it, it seems like you talk about how you, know, you really didn't deal with the emotions around your father's death until much later. Could you touch a little bit on that and you know, how that impacted everything for you? I was with him when he died and uh, it was cancer had spread everywhere. And in that moment, um, I, by that time, the cancer, uh, he'd been in court the week before trying a case. Cancer is a really up and down illness. And, um, but I could tell he was in bed and he was sick. Um, and as I said, the cancer had spread to his brain. And so he had a stroke, I guess, but I was talking to him and then I wasn't. And so at that moment, I could tell even as a 14 year old that he was this was it. He was dying quickly. So I begged God out loud to let him live, just begged him, you know, please don't let him die. And he died. And so I spent 25 years trying to prove to myself that I didn't need God or anyone to be successful, that I could do it on my own. And many of those years disregarding what I now think are important things in life. And so I was making close to a million dollars as a year as a criminal defense lawyer. And I just had this sort of experience, and many of your listeners couldn't probably share this, um, where you sort of sense in mind, body, or spirit, or all three, that it's over. You know, what you're doing at present is not going to work for you anymore. Sometimes, especially like in my case, and it ended up having a sort of body message to it, which was, I didn't feel good. And I was fatigued. And I, I just, you know, here I am, I'm in my early 40s. And it just, things just kind of, uh, well, as Pema Chodron's book title so aptly puts it, when things fall apart, uh, which is one of my favorite books. And that's what was happening, you know, I, and I ended up, you know, I ended up in the hospital. My doctor thought I was having a heart attack or something. It just, it was a panic attack. I didn't even know what a panic attack was. I've never even heard that phrase. And then I, it wasn't my heart. My heart's fine, was fine then and is now, but it was, um, I ended up on antidepressants and, and I think many people who are searching for the next thing in life can sort of relate to what I'm saying about anxiety and depression and just sort of feeling lost and hopeless, even in this world of unbelievable choice for people who have talents and skills and the, the paradox of choice is in front of us every day, now more than ever. And that can really cause some pretty serious anxiety, I think. And it did for me and I couldn't figure out what to do. So that's kind of the uh, backdrop for your question. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that 
what's so important is, you know, that you eventually did recognize that you needed to deal with with that experience and the emotions that came along with it. And the whole book is is really about you know, how you have pursued what you call your personal vocation. And we'll get into what that means, but I know that, you know, it, it wasn't immediate, right? You know, you left law and then there was this kind of several year stretch before you figured out what your next step was. So, you know, I'm curious, what did you do, you know, during those five years or at the end of those five years that jolted you out of that negative place and kind of enlightened you to the next steps? Well, one small correction, but it's important. And that is I didn't leave law and take three or four years to figure it out. I kept practicing law. So I I had to, I mean, I had to, I mean, I had to feed the machine. (laughs) So I was struggling with all of this while I was practicing law. And I mean, I think I was a good lawyer. I never lost a jury trial and, and uh, I was able to pick and choose my cases by the end of my career. And so I had to keep doing it. And, and, and I, and I did, I did a good job. I did, I, I, but it was hard. And this is why I I think it's important to make this point is because many people don't have the luxury of just quitting their job and sitting around for three to five years to figure it out. I sure didn't. So I did what most people do. You know, I, I trudged through it as best I could. I mean, I ended up taking Lexapro, like I said, to kind of help with depression and that helped a little bit at the time, but this was five years and I had no idea it was going to be five years. I thought it might be six months or a year to figure it out. And so I did what most people do and especially lawyers and you're an accountant. So you get this, um, we research, you know, we want to go to the code, <laughs> right? you know, and there's got to be an answer somewhere in the code or in, in the book or in the law and it wasn't there. And it's not there. That's one of my messages. It is not found within the Google search box. So, but I spent a lot of time researching, you know, what should I do? What business should I buy? What business should I start? Nothing was really coming my way. And all the while I prayed this very simple prayer every day, which was, dear God, please give me something else to do. I said that sometimes 10 times a day not knowing, as I said, that it was going to be five years. And one thing led to another. Because I was so driven to find the answer, I happened into a volunteer program at a hospital. And I don't want to get ahead of your questions, but you you tell me if... No, not at all. I would love for you to to talk about this. And um, you know, there was actually a quote about this experience, you know, where you talked about the first step in sorting myself out was to not think about myself, but instead to focus on other people. So could you touch on that and, and what that volunteer experience did for you? So the thing was, and I said, I kind of happened into it because, you know, I'm just I'm researching and searching and reading books and talking to people. What should I do? Well, in, in the background was this sort of unresolved grief issue with my dad. And I don't talk about this a lot, but but I mentioned it in the book. But at that same time, I co-founded a grief center for children uh, and families who have experienced the death of a family member that is still going on to this day. So 20 years, we're about to celebrate our 20th anniversary. And I'm still on the board. I still, I facilitate a team group of kids who've experienced the death of a parent or sibling. And so anyway, I was doing that, but apparently it wasn't enough. Um, And so to sort of 
further place my head in the mouth of the lion, which was, you know, my fear was, it was all based in death and dying and just people who were struggling and suffering and pain from cancer and other diseases. And so what I decided to do, and this is what I mean by put my head in the mouth of the lion, is I decided, well, I'll just volunteer at a local hospital in their palliative care department. And palliative care is for people who are dying. It's essentially hospice in the hospital. So on Fridays, they would give me a list of patients to visit that when I was in town, I did this for almost five years. Uh, and it, it could have been people in ICU or neuro or cardiac, uh, or in most cases, oncology. And these patients were people who'd asked for a visit. They often didn't have family or, or friends. And I would just knock on the door, tell them I was a volunteer, and I would read to them, and I would talk to them about whatever they wanted to talk about, recipes, hunting, fishing, younger days, whatever. And I would always end my visit by asking them if they would like me to say a prayer for them. Almost everyone who is dying, I've learned, will take a prayer. So I would ask them, well, what would you like me to pray for? And this is what really deepened the conversation. Many you know, would say, well, um, would you pray that I'm healed? I want to get well. I don't want to die. I would pray that. They would say, would you pray that I live two weeks to my 65th wedding anniversary, I would pray that. Would you pray that I die today because I'm in pain and I'm ready to go? And I, I just listened intently. I asked them if I could touch their arm or shoulder, and I prayed their exact words back to them without judgment. If they wanted to be healed. They wanted to live a couple of weeks. They wanted to die. They, I, I had no judgment. And this thing happened where I actually spent a few moments really measured in seconds thinking about someone else besides me. And for many of us, you know, that's fairly rare. And even for me to this day, I spend most of the day thinking about myself. Well, I need to do this. I need to get that done. Or I need to accomplish this. Or why didn't I get recognized for that? Or so to really just laser focus, I mean, with the deepest intention of being present as possible on this earth, usually defined as kind of right place, right time, it was unbelievable. And so many times I would finish and I would um, leave the hospital after my day and I would walk to my car and it was as if my feet weren't on the ground. Not every time, but sometimes. It, it was like I was walking on air or something and it was quite an odd feeling. And it would not last forever, you know, but I did, I did sense it. And what that is, I came to find out, is joy. That's what it feels like. And I didn't know really what that felt like. Uh, the poet philosopher I quote extensively in the book is Khalil Gibran, who said that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. So what was happening to me is my greatest sorrow in my life was in the process of becoming unmasked. And so every time I would reflect back and repeat back to that patient what they wanted me to pray for in their own words, that was just a further unmasking of the sorrow in my life. That's the paradox. See, that Gandhi said, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. Jesus said something similar, take up uh, your cross and follow me. So it's the paradox. It doesn't make sense. 
that when we're struggling, if we could just serve someone who needs us in that moment, that somehow we ourselves will be healed. It just doesn't make sense, but it's, it's a truth. And I know it is because I experienced it. And that is what began the sort of healing process for me. It's also what created clarity and space in my life to consider my future. And that would be starting a chocolate factory. Right. Well, you know, I, I do believe it, it was one of the most powerful parts of the book. I think this whole idea that, you know, you really did have to, like you said, lose yourself in the service of others to find yourself and move forward. So, you know, I definitely thank you for, for sharing that story. I know it is deeply personal. Sean, so this idea of a personal vocation, again, this is really the center of the book. And you mentioned that it's not something that can be found uh, as much in as book. I hope in, <laughs> in a book or in the Google search bar. And so, you know, first, could you describe what you mean by personal vocation? And then if we can't find it on Google or in your book or others, then how can we find it? Personal vocation is kind of what you would think it would be. I, I also call it a calling, and I think it's a drawing. It's a We're being pulled toward something to do with our day. It's not the depth of who we are. It isn't our true self, as Thomas Merton would say. It's not our soul, as he would also describe. It's the thing that we're doing. It's, it's the thing that we do in the day. It's the way we provide sustenance for ourselves and others, and it's our work. I think that for some people, and not all people, they hunger for this drawing, this pulling. They hunger for, for some kind of gravity that will lead them almost by the hand toward this work. That's what it is. I, I think that's what it is. And so, the second part of your question is, or the answer I think is, we all, me included, like for example, I love meditation. I read books on meditation. Reading the book doesn't make me a better meditator. And the same with prayer. I love different forms of prayer, Ignatian prayer and contemplative prayer. I like going on retreats. But if I read about retreats or read about prayer and meditation, it enlightens me in, in the in the intellectual sense, but it does not take me anywhere. I'm an observer, not a participant. And so what I really want people to understand who, if they find that they're drawn to this message that you and I are now talking about, if they feel pulled toward this message, then what I really want to impress upon them is that it's important to put the book aside, even my book, to put podcasts aside, this podcast, all of the podcasts, you know, there's 4 million books on Amazon. Can you believe that? And how many podcasts are there? Like 300,000 or some unbelievable number of podcasts? Way more than that, I think, yeah. And, and so this is great, right? We want people to be hungry for information. But what's harder these days is to put it aside, to roll up our sleeves and to do the work. Go out and do the work. What does that mean? It means... Go find someone who needs you. And if you are going to tell me, well, I don't know anybody who needs you, well, then we need to work on that. <laughs> you need to meet some people who need you, like maybe in your family or your, your coworkers, your neighbors, or especially, and this is where I believe the almost 
secret mystery lies. And that is, can you find someone who needs you, who is in the same lane as your own pain and the person or people or group of people who need you the way you needed them when your pain was born and your own suffering and your own broken heart. And if you can do that, and I just, we just talked about an example of it with me going to the palliative care department, then, then that's where the real um, mystery deepens and where I think the greatest possibility of clarity and seeing through some of the mystery can happen. But it's work. It's not easy. You know, it is not easy. And it's, it's work. It, well, in fact, it's even work just to even understand what you and I are talking about because we want to deny our own broken hearts. And we want to also say that our broken hearts have nothing to do with business and they don't have to do with making money or entrepreneurship. And I think they have everything to do with it. Yeah. I, uh, I had someone on the show who said that we don't have business problems. We have personal problems that show up in our business. And I think that it's, it couldn't be more true. Well, so Sean, does pursuing your vocation necessarily have to mean a massive career change like it did for you in going from law to chocolate making? No. In fact, I get emails from people who have read my book and they say, thank you. And I went through the whole book. I did the exercises and I realized I'm right where I need to be. I love that. And in many ways, I wish that I could have done that, but it wasn't for me. You know, it just wasn't for me. And um, I was certainly open to it. I mean, gee whiz, I took five years, you know, still doing what I was doing and and so, absolutely not. In fact, I think that someone could read the book, someone could do some of the exercises and listen to what we're talking about and come to the realization in the sort of uh, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz sense, and I'm right where I need to be. I've been here all along. And so, as Joseph Campbell describes the hero's journey, I mean, there are people who might read this book and they'll resonate with it and realize They've already been on the hero's journey and they're right back where they, they're back to the community. They're back to the village to share what they've learned. And I love that. And I, I mean, we're all at different places on the trail, you know? And so I, I love that. I mean, and I see that as I'm, I'm seeing someone, you know, who's up ahead on the trail and they're turning back and they're sharing with me that, hey, I'm on the right path. I'm on the right trail and thank you. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love that. I mean, and I think that regardless of what kind of business that you might be in, there there's a way to bring your personal vocation into that. But you know, you you mentioned in the book how there is this limiting belief in traditional business that says that doing good can only come at the expense of profit. And I know that that's definitely not true at Askinosi Chocolate. Now, why would you think that that is? Well, we are culturally conditioned by this limiting belief in North America and most of the world, most certainly the developed world. And so we just, we, I mean, we're taught this in business school and we're taught this by the economists and business gurus of the last century. And so it's no wonder that, that young people come out of business school and um, law school and other schools thinking that this is, this is the way. And I also think that we're um, in some sense beholden to this notion of shareholder value. So if we have investors 
Um, and if we're a publicly traded company, certainly we have a legal uh, fiduciary obligation to those um, shareholders, as you know, as an accountant. And, and if we have private investors, we're also fiduciary. We have fiduciary to them. And then we think even if, like me, you're just a, an LLC, a single member LLC, then we have some kind of obligation to maximize profit for our family. But I just think that, that much of that is melting away. I think it's melting away with people in your generation. And, it's, and we're seeing it in the business world all over this country. The notion is that we can do the right thing. We can engage with people who need us. We can do our part, as, as Joseph Campbell says, to joyfully participate in the sorrows of the world as business people, as companies, even as investors. We can say, we're going to do this, and we can also be a for-profit company at the same time. Now, to peel this back, just a, a, another layer deeper, and that is this. We're feeding 1,000 kids a day right now in the Philippines with a sustainable um, school lunch program that we've been doing in the Philippines now for almost, sorry about that, Bell. No problem. If you want, you can just restart your sentence and the editors will chop it off. It's fine. But you know, that bell is an important part of my life. And I talk about it in the book and I didn't just set it up. So, but it's a, it's a prayer reminder, you know, um, because I try to follow the daily office except for three o'clock in the morning. I'm not a Catholic, but I'm a kind of a pseudo Catholic as an Episcopalian. And so it reminds me during the day, just a little mantra that I say in my head, you know, to point me back, you know, so it's okay. But I think that that what happens is we, as, as business people, we, we recognize that when we peel this back, uh, you know, when we peel it back one more layer, just slightly deeper, we realize, wait, there are going to be sacrifices that we make. So I mentioned this school lunch program. We've been doing this in the Philippines for nine years. We did it in Tanzania for five. We have, we're only a 17-person company, and we have supplied over a million sustainable school lunches to kids in Tanzania and the Philippines, all with zero donations. We profit share with farmers. I've never not profit shared with farmers, no, one time in 12 years. And we publish it all on our website. So you can see every contract that we've paid, every farmer group, how much we profit share, how it compares to the world market price and fair trade price and, and farm gate price and all of that. I say all of that because the, the question, if you were my accountant, you, you would say, or we would have a discussion and, you, and you'd say, well, Sean, do you think that if you didn't do some of this profit sharing with farmers, or if you didn't spend time on this school lunch program, that you'd have more top line revenue? And I would say, well, I don't want to do that. But I guess if you were going to make me answer the question, yeah, I probably would. I probably would have more top line revenue. Well, do you think you'd have more net profit? Probably. I don't know how much because I've never done it any other way. I've never not had these programs. We have a chocolate university program where we engage um, elementary school, middle school, and high school kids in our business. And we have a middle school, summer school program. We've never not done it. So I don't know how much more money we would make. But the point is, and I think this is, this is an important point that relates literally to the content of your podcast and, and the title of the podcast even. And that is, is it a perfect answer to this question of doing well and doing good? And I think the answer is no, it isn't. 
can I make as much money doing these things? No, I can't. But the thing of it is, and this is why this is a complicated question, is I don't care. I don't want to make more money. I mean, I want to make, I want to make a little bit more because I want to save for a roaster that I think is going to break down next year, knock on wood. But, but I mean, or I want to pay people more money here. I want to, you know, I, yeah, yes. I want, I, I want to be able to reduce debt faster. Yes. But I don't want to grow huge. I'm not looking for a big investor. And I know life could be easier, even for my family, if I made more money. I don't, look, I said at the top of the show, I made almost a million dollars a year as a lawyer. I do not make that now. I make now what I used to pay in taxes. Okay. Yeah. Think about that for a minute. But this choice of not having the same degree of financial success is worth it to the thousandth power. It's worth it. Why? Because when I told you that what I, I finally learned what it felt like to have this joy walking out of the doors of the hospital after I'd been with people who were dying, and I had, I'm not going to say I unlocked the mystery, but I'm going to say that I was able to observe the mystery of that. I, I was able to see it for just a minute. That was not a destination that I never wanted to return to in my business. I returned to that joy in my business routinely, routinely. And I don't think it would be possible to return to that joy, to experience joy at that level without being who we are in this company. As I described, school lunches for kids, engaging kids in our business, profit sharing with farmers. I believe that I would not be able to return to that again and again and again. And I talk about in the book that once people find this path toward their vocation, please, please, I beg of you, don't forget what brought you to that in the first place. Don't look back 15 years later and say, gee whiz, the business has grown and things are taking off, but what happened to that feeling that I had when I started the thing? Don't lose it. It's a practice. This, this, thing, this thing that we're talking about now, this staying tethered to your vocation and calling, it's a discipline. It's a practice, I think. And that way we can stay connected to the thing that brought us there to begin with and, and, not, and not lose it. And I'm not saying that these things are mutually exclusive, that you have to make less money in order. I'm not saying that. I'm saying for me, that's in my experience. It's so remarkable the the results that you've been able to achieve, you know, with your business selling chocolate and and with the way that that's impacting all of these people around the globe and children locally in in Springfield and and so you know I definitely encourage everyone to go pick up a copy of Sean's book because you know you do go into a lot more detail there about these programs you know how the sustainable lunch lunch uh, program works and it really is fascinating but I do want to come back to you know one final point something that really especially resonated with me as I read your book a lot of people who are listening right now are extremely ambitious, right? You know, they have big goals that they're chasing. And you talked in the book about this idea of being instead of doing. What does that mean and why is it so important? The context for that is 
I am a family brother at Assumption Abbey, which is a Trappist monastery about an hour and a half from here. And uh, I've been going to this monastery for about 18 years. One of the, the monks there really encouraged me as I was making this decision about becoming a family brother, which by the way, I'm not a monk. I just go there. I live with the monks when I'm there. But he knew, as you described, I, I, I was, I am ambitious. I'm a doer. I get things done. I am just that kind of person and many, well, all entrepreneurs are that way. And so he really challenged me to think about this idea of living a life of being inserted by doing as opposed to a life of doing inserted by being. And it's not even so much about balance as it is about what's the first thing that I want, you know? Do I aspire to this life of being? And that is my aspiration, to live a life of being, then pick places where I can have activity and do things. And this is a particular struggle for me as it relates to doing good works. Because, you know, we're, we have these school lunch programs and I want to start more. I want to do another school lunch program, as you can imagine, because you see the the benefits of it, and you see kids that are getting fed who are malnourished. But this monk, who's 87 years old and a pretty wise man, and my spiritual director, has really challenged me. Because I think especially when doing good works, we can fall prey to this. It's almost a trap because we hear this voice in our head, which says, but you can feed more. You can do more good. And it's funny because it's our own voice telling us this. It's very manipulative. Then what happens? We burn ourselves out. We lose sight of why we're doing it. And so what I would say, here's how it looks. I was in the Philippines two weeks ago. It was my 11th trip there, my 41st origin trip since I started the business. So I've been there a lot. I knew what I was going to see. I'm going to meet with cocoa farmers and I'm going to see extreme poverty and I'm gonna, I, I know it. So in the airport, I literally called one of the, the family brother directors, a monk, and asked him, you know, literally, I mean, and I've been doing this for a long time. I said, Father Paul, I said, what is this going to look like for me on this trip about being versus doing? Because I'm getting ready to do a lot. I'm going to meet with farmers. I'm going to do, what, is that, what does that look like? And he said, Sean, for you, you know, in the coming hours and days on this trip, what you're going to need to to examine is you're going to need to examine why you're doing what you're doing. What is the purpose that you're getting ready to do what you're going to do? And I've written this book. I've done all these podcast interviews. I've, and I'd never really thought about the following. And he said, is your primary purpose for what you're doing to further your relationship with your faith? So as I've said, my, and I talk about in the book, I, I'm not proselytizing. I'm not an evangelist. I don't care. My faith is, as I describe in the book, it's a faith in Jesus. It's a faith in Christ and how I can live this contemplative life even with action. And so he said, when you see what you see and you're going to be um, wanting to do these things, ask yourself, why? Are you doing it because you want to be recognized? Are you doing it because you want to put it on your resume? Are you doing it because you want to do a story on your website about it? 
what is the real reason that your soul is drawn to do this thing? And man, you know, that was a real challenge to me. And I loved it. That's exactly what I needed. And so I spent the next days in the Philippines thinking about that in almost every scene that I encountered. And that gave me clarity about it. And it doesn't even, you know, I'm even embarrassed to say I wrote the whole book and I didn't really even talk about that in the book. But here I am. I mean, you asked the question. So thank you for asking it. I mean, that, that to me is important. It doesn't matter. So I could ask you, I don't know what your faith is or if you even have a faith. But I would say to you the same thing. If you were asking me, well, what does it look like? I would say to you in your life, I would say, well, if you're going to maybe do this other thing or go to this place and see these people and talk about starting this other thing or new thing or this activity, why are you doing it? What's your purpose? What's your real soul's purpose for doing this? Yeah. And I mean, it's a question that it seems so obvious and yet it really isn't for for hardly anyone and you know so i i love you know one of the things you do in the book is you you take people through these processes you know for how they can you know figure out their vocation how they can create a a culture in their company that serves that vocation and you know i think that what you just described is really the last step you know does all of that tie into why you're really doing what you're doing so I really appreciate you, Sean, for sharing that with us and, and everything that, that you've shared. I mean, it really is inspiring to me and I know to the listeners as well. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. So I'd like to move into what I call the impact round. So I'm going to ask you a few questions and I'd like for you to just respond with the first answer that pops into your head. Ready? Yeah. All right, let's do it. So Sean, who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well and achieve financial success? I'd say Father Cyprian, uh, my spiritual director, 87-year-old Catholic priest monk at the Abbey. I would say him. Amazing. And I'm curious why you choose him for the financial success piece. Because the next thing you're going to ask me is who influenced me to do good. And I think there's no difference between them. Wow. They're the same thing. I mean, that's why. So I'm going to say Father Cyprian for the second one too. I'm a brokenhearted person. So the things that allow me to speak the language of brokenheartedness are, is my relationship with Father Cyprian over the years and how he's helped me just in really small ways, but in a cumulative way over about 19 years. I have to say, Sean, I've recorded close to 70 of these episodes, and that is the most incredible answer I've ever received for, for those two questions. So I appreciate that. That's that's a mind shift just, just for me. So thank you. Wow. Now, Sean, when you're having a bad day, what do you do to get yourself out of the funk? Do you have any sort of regular personal development practices? I know you said you do meditate. Well, one of the things I love is walking. I love to walk. I have walking meetings. I like when I'm talking to people. Like right now, I wish we were on a walk, you know, uh, maybe someday. But And so that's the thing I do. And then the other thing I do is I try to start my day off with some practices, you know, so I start my day in the morning, five mornings a week with a pretty specific routine that I hope will kind of set me on the path. And it's not perfect. I know that it's, that there will be times that definitely what something that happens during the day that'll set me off course and, and kind of take me to another um, place. And so I need to, I need to walk I need to, you know, maybe call my wife. Uh, we've been married for 31 years and 
So she's a real support for me and, and that's what I do. What book do you find yourself recommending to people most often? I think it depends on what they need, <laughs> what, and how deep the conversation goes. But I would say the one that I recommend, one of the books that I recommend the most is called The Joy of Full Surrender by Jean-Pierre de Cassade. And he was a Catholic French monk in the 1800s. The Joy of Full Surrender. It's a very challenging book. Many say that he is the Catholic priest who sounds the most like Zen Buddhism. And I would think, and I, and I happen to agree with that. And so um, I recommend that book a lot. And of course, I recommend books that I talk about, like Tuesdays with Maury Changed My Life by Mitch Album. I recommend that book a lot. I recommend Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning a lot. And I recommend any book by Jean Vanier, who is a, a French-Canadian um, theologian, also in his upper 80s now. And he wrote a book called Becoming Human that I recommend a lot. Now, the final question in the impact round, Sean, what is the best piece of advice related to happiness that you'd give our listeners? I would say that I'm not exactly sure what happiness is, but I know what it is to be joyful and have experienced it, not all the time, but have moments of joy, glimpses of joy. And I think the thing that I would say to your listeners is when you unplug this podcast and put your phone down, I would ask you to contemplate for just a few minutes and maybe even taking a few deep breaths and asking who needs me right now, who needs me in my life that I can commit to and I can roll up my sleeves, even though I'm anxious, even though I'm depressed, even though I feel somewhat hopeless, I would just say, please consider that and go do it and see what happens. And the mystery and magic will unfold in your life in ways that you can't even expect. That is so powerful. Thank you, Sean. And as you know, here on the show, we have what I like to call the do well and do good challenge. This is where I encourage our listeners who want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by my guests. Could you tell us what organization you're nominating and why? I think I nominated Chocolate University and Chocolate University is a foundation. um, And it's the program that we use to engage um, high school students and other students in our neighborhood to teach them about business and to teach them about profit sharing and about open book management. And it's what we use to fund our trips to take kids to Tanzania to meet cocoa farmers. And also we're building a preschool in Tanzania for 300 kids in a village that has no early childhood education. And so that's what that goes for. And I'm grateful for that. Amazing. Now, Sean, before we say goodbye, of course, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, to get your book, and of course, to get your chocolate? Well, thank you. Uh, Our chocolate um, is available on askanosi.com and we have a zip code locator so people can see if maybe there's a store in their area that carries our chocolate. As I said, we're a small company, so we're not everywhere, but we are in a lot of stores, but we ship and we're available online. So that's a place. And of course, on social media channels, our Askenosi chocolate story is there and available for people to read about and see and follow. For me personally, I have a blog, um, seanaskenosi.com, and I have maybe, oh, 13 followers. And I try to write about the things that you and I talked about today and, and, and sort of deepen some of the topics that, that we talk about in the book. And then I have um, speaking engagements, you know, periodically uh, at colleges, universities, and schools around the country. So, yeah. 
Well, Sean, I have a feeling you're going to have several more followers on that blog after this episode comes out. So thank you so much for doing this with me today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Well, likewise, it's great to meet you and thank you for your awesome questions. All right, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to introduce any new listeners to how the Do Well and Do Good Challenge works. There are two ways that you can participate. The first is if you are looking to do more to give back, I encourage you to contribute to any of the nonprofits nominated by my guests. Send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co and your donation will be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact this podcast is having. The second way you can participate is absolutely free and that's by voting. See, in the first couple days of each month, we host a vote inside of our free Facebook community to determine which of the nonprofits nominated the month before that I will then donate a portion of my advertising agency's profits to. It's an awesome way to make your voice heard and we've been able to raise money for some incredible organizations doing good in the world. So if you'd like to be a part of it, then head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, where you'll find a link to join the group. Once you're inside, I'm also sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. We're having so much fun inside there. So head over again to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, and I'll see you on the inside. It means the world to me to earn your time. So thank you so much for listening.